Well, good morning. Um, just seeing those images reminded me what a privilege it is to be able to partner with an organization like Hope for San Diego and their day of service. To be able to see photos of people like us that are out there serving other people and serving organizations that serve people. Um, it's great to know that um, we're able to participate and be sort of a redemptive presence in our community. So thank you to Hope for San Diego for giving us the chance to do that. We continue this morning in our new sermon series in the book of James. Um, the series is a, as a whole is entitled Believing and Doing, the Seamless Unity of Faith. And absolutely, that's what, you know, what we hear and what we do needs to be completely tied together because that's what makes sense. Our passage this morning starts at the end of chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, and which is sort of a carry over from the previous section, but then uh, giving us the context that we need for verses 19 through 27. So the end of chapter one of James. Um, what we're going to be focusing on is this, um, really this connection between hearing and doing, believing and acting. Uh, and actually more to the point, James is going to say, hey, look, we, there's actually a problem because there isn't as much of a connection as we'd like. Um, so if you're keeping track, um, we're going to be talking about the, actual, the disconnect um, with regard to what we're actually called to in this world and what's actually happening. Two problematic ways in which we might go about trying to do more or to once again begin to act in the ways in which we're supposed to. And then finally, we will arrive at the one perfect solution. Um, the word perfect is in the scriptures, and so that's why I get to use that. I, I'm not really selling anything. So, let me read the passage for us. James chapter 1, verse 18 through 27. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits for all he created. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak, slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein in their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James, um, the reason why I pick up verse 18 is because James does almost a beautiful job of just capturing in one verse the sort of summary of what God is up to in this world and quite frankly how we are to find ourselves inside God's redemptive agenda. We see in verse 18 that it's at his initiative, he does the choosing, we have been giving a new birth, a fresh start, deliverance from sin. And all of this comes about through the gospel. 
the word of truth. And now the question that we want to ask is, this new birth through the word of truth, what is it for? Toward what end do we get to experience this new birth? His answer is to be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. First fruits is an odd term. Um, it's a term that's typically used to refer to the first portion of a harvest, for example. And it would often be referred to, be referring to a, a consecrated offering, right? Here's a first stuff. We've been waiting all winter, all spring, all summer for the first of the harvest. And here it is. Oftentimes, it can be referred to as a bit of a foretaste, a bit of a pledge of what is to come, an offering. What's astounding here is that God is the one that is making this offering. He is offering us as a bit of a first fruits to the world. It's as if he says, he is giving us new birth through the gospel as a sacred foretaste of what is to come. We recognize as followers of Jesus that one day there will be no evil, there will be no pain, there will be no suffering. There will come a time when God's benevolent will for his creation and his creatures will not be marred by sin or selfishness. There will be no systemic injustice. There will be no hunger. There will be no poverty. There will be no orphans and there will be no widows. And in choosing the term first fruits, it's as if James is saying that God is offering us as, of an, exa as an example of what is to come. A pledge that the way that he's going to renew and redeem and restore creation that the way he's going to help the world look like it will one day look like is by placing his renewed people into this creation to live that eternal kind of life in the here and now of time. God has called us to a role of renewing all things. And we then do that by being a community of faith that lives as a passive sign and foretaste of what is to come by the way in which we love and serve and sacrifice for one another. But we are also a community that lives as an active agent and instrument of what is to come by the way in which we love and serve and sacrifice for our neighbors. It's a beautiful calling to be this first fruits. It's an awesome privilege. It points to the remarkable calling, the vocation that God has um, given us. But something's awry, right? Here comes a disconnect. You see, James, as one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, he says, we're supposed to be first fruits. But he kind of looks around and he says, we've got a problem. There's a disconnect between what we hear and whether or not we obey it, between believing and doing. Look with me at verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. You see, merely listening to the word without doing what it says is the problem. 
That's the disconnect. James is describing this disconnect as a self-deception in verse 22. Self-deceived means that we are thinking wrongly and that we are just out of whack. It's like James is basically saying, hey, look, we are God's first fruits. We're a sacred preview, a down payment uh, uh, by God to the world and a sort of a foretaste of what is to come. But we don't seem to be living into that calling. We are self-deceived. We're not actually doing what the gospel calls us to. It's like we are merely listening to the word of God, but not putting into action. And so James says, do what it says. Do what it says. It's a call to action. It's a call to do more. James is saying, just do it. Uh, and I guess I am as well, uh, because I think that's what this, this passage is calling us to. But it is, is a tricky call to action. It's actually kind of a dangerous thing to do if we are self-deceived. If we are a little bit off track, um, it can lead us into problematic responses to doing more. And uh, so that's really what I want to talk about next, because if we're a little bit askew with reality, if we're not quite in alignment with the Lord, then we might find ourselves doing the wrong kinds of actions um, um, to in, in our call to do more. Now, there are two considerations that uh, we need to pay attention to in order to be able to rightly live into the freeing and redeeming and life-giving flourishing of all people and all things. In other words, if we're not paying attention to how these two um, uh, characteristics or two considerations come into play with one another, we may find ourselves being deceived uh, by moving into a couple of false counterfeits for the gospel. Last year, when I had a chance to preach, uh, I shared with you a two-by-two illustrating that, and um, um, we'll be referring to that diagram again. The two dynamics that we want to pay attention to is, uh, on the left-hand side here, the idea of the law. In other words, how well are we doing in terms of keeping the rules and the regulations to become the kind of righteous and holy people that God intends us to be, right? And uh, that's a good thing because we want to be the kinds of people that love others and serve self-sacrificially. Across the bottom, we have the dynamic of grace. And you see it moving from low to high. In other words, in our considerations of how we do more, we want to pay attention to whether or not we need grace or we don't. If we don't think we need grace, we're on the low side. uh, And if we think we need a lot of grace, we put that on the high side. Now, as you'll, you may or may not recall, that when we look at these two interactions, it can give us some interesting categories for how we might think about um, the gospel. For example, um, if we believe that we can live up to God's perfect standards by merely keeping all the rules and by working hard and achieving it ourselves without any grace, without any help from God, I call that top left-hand quadrant religion or false religion or false religious performance. It's the idea that I can earn my way into being righteous and good and acceptable to God. Now, we know that's not the case, but if we live that way with believing that we can keep all the rules without needing any of God's help to do that, it doesn't actually produce the gospel within us. 
what it actually produces is a kind of righteousness is really more of a self-righteousness, and that's not really a pretty thing. On the lower right-hand corner, this is sort of an illustration of what it would be like if we said, you know what, we really believe that we need God's grace um, and, that, um, and that what we need is uh, Jesus' work on the cross and that we need all the help we can get from God because we can't do it ourselves. And so we really highly value the work of grace in our life, but it's possible to be able to say, I am so loved and accepted and forgiven by God that I don't actually need to move north uh, on this chart to become more holy and righteous and kind and self-sacrificial and serving my neighbor. I call this um, category license. Um, It's like the freedom to sin in this case. It's a freedom to not have to live into the high standard of being righteous people that actually God intends for us. Now, neither of those are the gospel. If you find yourself in the lower left-hand corner, it may very well be that you do not recognize a need to have to live up to God's standards and you don't actually feel that you need God's grace uh, to be able to live the best kind of life. I'm going to call that irreligion. But in the top right-hand corner, I'm going to call the gospel. Because the gospel really is the place where we recognize that, yes, we do want to live a perfect and good and right and holy life, but not because we've achieved it. That actually doesn't give us the gospel. That doesn't produce the kind of fruit in our lives that we desire. Actually, we need to understand that, yes, we do need to become righteous and holy, but we can only do it through the work of God's grace in our life, right? And as you come across that way into the gospel, we realize, oh, it's not my achievement, but it's rather God's that is freely gifted to me. Um, This is the way that I would say Paul thinks about it. He would say, hey, look, you can do all the things you want to do, but it's not the works that are going to save you. It's your um, faith in Christ. In fact, Paul summarizes this in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? For by grace you have been saved by faith, right? Not as a result of works, Uh, that anyone can boast, right? It's a free gift of God. And interestingly, by the way, after verses 8 and 9, which I just quoted, verse 10 says the reason why we have been saved is precisely this. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared us in advance to do. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like we are God's handiwork, place in the world to be able to do good works, not for our own sake, but for the sake of our neighbor. It sounds like James's language of being first fruits. Interestingly, as long as we're at it, is that James approaches this uh, from the other tact. Um, last week, Jonathan was talking about how um, Paul and James have a different orientation. Martin Luther, you know, as a reformer, really identified with, with Paul, but couldn't quite get what James was saying. Well, this is how it works together. Paul, Pharisee, keep the rules, right, and realize, oh my gosh, it's salvation comes as a free gift of God. James is doing the other way. He's saying, hey, look, you are recognizing the grace uh, that is offered to you um, through the work of Jesus Christ, um, but you actually need to put yourself put your faith into action to live into your vocation as as first fruits. Either way, whether Paul or James, you're going to get to the same gospel, right? Um, The reason why James talks about it in a very counterintuitive way from Paul is because it's a different kind of a challenge. He's saying, look, 
and I'll say this in chapter two, you may have faith, but faith without works is dead. Whereas Paul would go, hey, look, works is dead without faith. So that's how those two fit together. Um, James comes to us here then, right? And he says, look, you guys are merely listening and you're not doing. What's the deal? And I would suggest that with regard to these two problematic responses to James's call to do more, we might actually call it this way. Some of us are going to say, well, we are going to have to, we're going to achieve. And so we're going to have to overexert while undergracing. Others of us, rather than achieve, we're going to luxuriate or bask in um, God's grace in the sense that we might overgrace while underexerting. For the achievers, you know, we're going to come and we're going we're to read this passage of scripture, for example, and we're going to say, okay, I need to do more. And we'll read the passage and we'll say, all right, I need to be quick to listen, quick to listen, quick, quick. I'll write that down. That's, that's a new commandment to me. I need to be slow to speak, slow to speak, number two. All right, I'm going to have to quick to listen, slow to, uh, all right, got it. And slow to become angry. Oh, yeah, don't be angry. Commandment number three. If we are in this overachieving and undergracing mentality that leads to religious performance, what's going to happen is we're going to turn everything that we read in Scripture, right, as another command for us to do, for something for us to accomplish. And we're going to just pile it upon ourselves. I looked through this passage, and just quickly, I counted 17 new ethical imperatives that could be considered commandments that I'd have to keep if I were in the overachieving, overexerting, undergracing category. That's wrong. Um, it's getting back on the hamster wheel and trying to figure out how to earn. Uh, and, and when James says do more, we go, okay, we're going to have to earn. We're going to have to achieve this. Leaving grace out of the equation. Don't do that. The other problematic response is for those who are perhaps just basking or I'm going to say luxuriating because I, I really like the idea of sitting in God's grace. Yes, but when it comes to sitting in that grace without the accompanying action in the world, it's problematic. We might say, all right, James says, hey, you need to do more. And if you're in that uh, license category, luxuriating in God's grace, you might resist any claim upon me that says, you know, I'm supposed to do more because we might say, oh, well, I'm completely loved. I'm totally forgiven. There's nothing more that I can do to be right with God. And I'm not going to disagree with that in terms of not having to do anything more to be right with God. I, that's between you and God. But like James, I'm going to say, you may be right with God, but you wouldn't be living into the fullness of who God created you to be and you wouldn't be living into the fullness of what God has called you to do in this world. First fruits. N.T. Wright, in his commentary uh, on James, offers this observation. He says, you know, every generation in the church worries rightly about people who just glide along, seeming to enjoy what they hear in church, but without it making any real difference. Nominal Christians, we sometimes say. And I think that's what James is going after. He's saying, you know what? There is more action that needs to come, come about. Now, just for a little nuance here, it, you're not going to be solely in one category or, or in the other category. Uh, in fact, we really want you to be mostly in the gospel category. But we have these problematic responses that on, automatically flow out of us, partly out of our personality, how we approach uh, challenges and difficulties, 
but also because um, blindness plays a large part as well. Um, I, for example, I would say there are many places where I've been freed of religious performance, many places where I'm not. But one of the places where I realize that I have not been freed out of um, luxuriating in God's grace and putting things into action, um, I discovered uh, after the tragic death of George Floyd. You know, as I was watching all the uprisings and the protests um, and, and, and realizing that there was a lot of challenges uh, to being black in America, that um, I, I never really paid attention to it enough. And um, because it wasn't like I was really directly working in um, poor communities that had to pay attention to this systemic injustice. And so even though it felt a little uncomfortable because I, I wasn't quite sure if I was going to be saying the right things or if people were going to look at me and call me, judge me for, for not having the right lingo um, or consider me um, intolerant or too tolerant, you know, depending on who is complaining, I really felt like I needed to lean into it because I needed to learn about what was going on. And quite frankly, as I started to, to engage in that uncomfortable conversation, started reading about social injustice, started reading about history, the history of slavery, and how even after the 13th Amendment um, making freeing the slaves, that there was still slavery and forms of slavery that uh, just by a different name. And, and that's much of what I see happening. I can't unsee it now. So there's a sense in which, in that particular aspect of my life where I never would have considered myself um, a, um, a racist, at least through sins of commission, there were sins of omission because I just never felt like I needed to figure out what that conversation was about. And slowly, slowly as I began to learn, I began to realize, oh, there are places where my inaction and my inability to be able to articulate the injustice in this system here in the United States and other parts of the world um, was perhaps an example of how I was not resting in grace a little bit too much and not paying attention to my call to be a redemptive presence with regard to that particular concern. So it's complicated. Um, it's complicated. All right. Now, what I want to say is the call that James is issuing us is to not just listen, but to put into action, to do more. And I think that calls us to exert effort, to do things that may even feel uncomfortable to us, but actually is what is necessary for us to live into the fullness of God wants us to be and to be part of God's redemptive purposes in this world. Effort is not a problem when it comes to God's grace in our lives. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Earning is thinking you can achieve it without grace. Um, earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. God is calling us. James is calling us. I'm calling us to put into action what we hear. Okay. If the problem then is listening, but not doing what it says, um, what's the solution? We return to verses 22 through 25 and this metaphor of the mirror. We're told in verse 23, basically, hey, don't be that guy that sees himself in the mirror and then turns away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Instead, verse 25, 
James says, look intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. What's that? So we might think that a quick look is what we're to avoid. In other words, uh, this sort of out of sight, out of mind kind of a thing. It's like you look at yourself in the mirror, you leave, and you immediately forget or didn't even notice that you had, you know, scrambled eggs hanging from your chin and you go on and carry on with your day. But the guy that looks himself in the mirror and forgets is actually looking in a thoughtful way. Uh, he's, we know that because the word uh, looks at himself, looks, is the same word that Jesus uses when he says consider the lilies of the field. Right? So he doesn't, Jesus doesn't say just take a glance. He, he's reflect, ponder. It's the same word uh, that James uses here. And uh, so it's like this guy that looks in the mirror is reflecting and then is turning away and immediately forgets something. So that's not the problem in terms of the length or the type of the looking at which is being done. But rather, I'm going to propose that it isn't so much the quality of the reflection um, that's the issue as much as what is being observed. I'm proposing that the problem is that this person is merely looking at himself uh, through the mirror. Um, you know, it may very well be, if we were to stretch the metaphor a little bit, it'd be kind of like um, a, a, let me look and see what I need to do and figure out how I'm going to make myself a better person. Perhaps it's a humanistic, pull yourself up by the book, bootstraps, you know, work harder. It's all about you. You've got this um, mentality, which really at the end of the day is empty of power to change us. It's the overexerting, undergracing vibe of religious performance. But you know, it could also be this sort of observing this glance in the mirror and then forgetting um, that is um, an overgracing and underexerting uh, image of nominal Christianity. You know, it could be a glance to say, "Hey, I'm forgiven. I'm loved. My doctrine's good. I attend church, and I resist and I resist anything that smacks of religious performance." This too, as we listen to James, does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So instead, James is saying. Look intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. You may have noticed as we come through this passage, this constant refrain of a word of truth, right? Which is what gives us new birth. Or the word planted within you. Here in verse 25, the word is called the perfect law that gives freedom. What does that sound like? Commentators are pretty consistent that when James is referring to the word here in this passage, it's shorthand for the sum total of God's to uh, revealed truth. It's the sum total of God's revealed truth. Of course, including the teaching and the redemptive work of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. In short, commentators say what you should do is when you see the word word, you should see gospel. And I would propose that in this metaphor of the mirror then, that the corrective for not doing what is heard, the fix for both overexerting and undergracing, as well as the fix for overgracing and not uh, and, and underexerting, that the call is for us to look intently into the gospel, the perfect law, the one that frees us actually. The gospel, think about it, is the mirror that reflects back to us not, uh, it, the gospel reflects back to us as only the gospel might. 
You know, don't see the mirror as something you're looking through and just see yourself, but actually recognize that the, the mirror itself, the, the gospel, the, the perfect law of God is, is reflecting back to us who we are, but through the lens of being accepted and forgiven and um, and it actually breathes life into us because rather than looking at ourselves and trying to figure out how to make, make ourselves better people, we're actually looking into the gospel and recognizing that Jesus has done that work and he's made us completely loved and accepted and forgiven. And you know what we get to do now? We get to live into the fullness of who we're created to be. We get to live into being a first fruits in our broken creation. We get to participate in the day of service, not because we have to, because it's an effort, but because we want to. And that we, because we want to, it keeps us from lying on the couch in a sort of a nominal sort of a Christianity. But again, it allows us to be able to live more fully into what it is always intended to call us to. A life of being a redemptive presence in this world. A foretaste of the kingdom. uh, A pledge of what is to come. A sacred offering that God himself gives to the world um, through redeemed people like us who are listening and hearing, and putting the word into action. Let me pray for us. Lord, draw us with the irresistible magnetic force of the gospel. Bless us as we continue to reshape our thinking with your perfect ways. May our time this morning move us just that much closer to being the first fruits, the kingdom foretaste, the preview of more to come that you intend us to be. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.